0: warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon. In today for Julia Chatterley. And just ahead on today's show, Ukraine under attack. Russia launches a wave of deadly airstrikes on Kiev and other cities. The largest in months. More than a dozen people killed. We'll have a live report. Plus, ceasefire extended. Sudan's warring generals agreed to a fresh truce, but clashes still being reported across the country. And in business news, tech turbulence. Amazon warning of slowing cloud computing growth. Intel out with its largest quarterly loss ever. We'll discuss with tech analyst Dan Ives. New U.S. inflation numbers also out. This is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the core PCE index. It eased a bit year over year, but still clearly well above the Fed's 2% target, 4.6% you can see there. The rise month over month coming in as expected. All of this ahead of the central bank's critical policy meeting next week. And as markets digest all of this data, we've got a softer U.S. open on tap there. Banking jitters also helping pressure the major averages. You can see the S&P, Nasdaq, and Dow all off between about a quarter of a percent to, uh, yeah, let's call it a quarter of a percent. Europe also mixed. Disappointing eurozone GDP numbers hitting sentiment there. Asia, meantime, higher. The Nikkei jumping almost one and a half percent after the Bank of Japan's latest policy statement. A new Chairman at the helm, but no big policy changes here. Nikkei up about 1.4 percent, Heng saying about a quarter of 1 percent. Lots to get to today, but we want to begin with the latest from Ukraine. A wave of Russian missile attacks on key cities, including Dnipro and Uman. Missiles hit residential buildings early Friday morning, killing at least 17 people, some of them children. Nick Robertson has the details now.
1: They're saying the body count climbing. It's climbed again. Police just updated us here. 17 people dead, 18 injured, three of the dead, three of the dead are children. Look over my shoulder here. David's going to zoom in there. And you can see the firefighters clustered around the lower part of the building, the first floor of the building there. They're still searching the rubble there. The police say they're going to focus on that. Now David's going to pan up and take you higher up in the building there, up towards the eighth floor. There's smoke still coming out of there. And I can tell you a tragic story about what happened there overnight. We've spoken to a lady. Her friends lived in one of the apartments up there on the eighth floor. The husband's in hospital. The wife managed to escape, but there is a 13-year-old and a seven-year-old daughter still missing. The lady telling this was in absolute floods of tears, still missing somewhere up there on the eighth floor. And the police say that's where they're gonna go to next. They say they're not going to stop searching here until they've gone through everything and turned over all the debris here. 109 people registered living in this building. And as I'm talking to you here, um, behind behind David, there's a line of people just waiting here to find out what's happened to their loved ones, what's happened to their friends. A lot of emergency workers here. The Ukrainians, sadly, are getting all too experienced about clearing up after Russian strikes like this. 21 of the 23 missiles Russia fired into Ukraine last night were intercepted. This is what happens when just one gets through. And this is the fear that we've been hearing from neighbors here, not knowing if this is gonna happen again. A lady who lived in the building right here told me she heard the whoosh of the missiles, put her kids in the bathtub, put a blanket over their heads and just hoped that they would see the daylight come up in the morning.
0: And all of this happening as Ukraine is gearing up for a counteroffensive. The defense minister there is saying that preparations are almost complete. And according to NATO, Ukraine's allies have delivered 98 percent of the combat vehicles they promised. Nick Peyton walsh is live in Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine now. So Nick, preparations nearly complete. What's the very latest there?
2: Yeah, interesting comments this morning from Ukraine's uh, defence minister, Alexander Reznikov, saying that preparations for the counter-offensive are coming to an end. And he goes on to say, in a global sense, we are ready in a high percentage mode. The next question is up to the general staff. And as soon as it's God's will, the weather, it's been raining pretty badly on off here for the past two weeks, and the commander's decision... We will do it. Now, this is from a government who have, over the past two weeks, been quite clear they're not going to give us a sort of a starting bugle or an indication as to when they decide to start this counter offensive and made it absolutely clear, too, that secrecy is of a high imperative. That's even been echoed by US military officials who say they've assisted in training to make this, quote, a surprise attack. So it is interesting to hear this sort of. Uh, detailed discussion about readiness, about whose decision it is, about when that particular decision may indeed come. And we saw on the front line ourselves a growing sense of anticipation, if not even movement, suggesting the counteroffensive is imminent, if not possibly seeing its opening stages. Spring is here after winter's frozen horror, and the buzz and sting of Ukraine's looming counteroffensive is growing. Aiming at Russian positions, within 30 seconds, the Ukrainian unit has moved away. It may be a precise operation, but the Russian response is not. Slamming into the nearby town, edging closer to us. Impossible to tell what the Russians are trying to hit, but another example of the intense bombardment, their bid to stop the counter-offensive from starting. It is ordinary civilians, caught in the rising dust behind us, who bear the brunt of Russia's frustrated rage. Along and around the brutalised towns, where Ukraine says it may launch its attack, there are more signs it is underway lurking in the foliage than Ukraine has given publicly. That's because Ukraine has said nothing at all about when, where or how it will attack. But among machine gun fire in the nearby trenches are drone operators hidden in the rubble. The detailed, intimate picture they have of their enemy just two fields away is startling. Watching and trying to kill each other every hour. They've noticed the
3: сомневаюсь что с этими всеми звуками там сильно его услышит они поумнели они все отошли назад типа тут какой-либо тяжелой техники или чего-то такого нет иногда замечался такой профессионализм что они четко брали дрон анти дроновой пушкой в итоге дрон останавливался и они расстреливали его
2: Another drone team has seen the Russians also left defending ruins, ridden by chaos in their ranks.
3: Част часто между собой перестреливаются, бьются между собой тоже, живут как у себя дома. Вертолетик может по ним стрельнуть, также сама свой же ихнем вертолетик стрекоза называется, может по своим ударить.
2: It won't be long until that cunning or chaos meets a decisive test in this flat, open and perilous space. The real issue, obviously, for Ukraine here is the speed in which it can achieve some strategic success here. Because the Russians, while you heard there of their ineptitude, and we've seen it uh, well over the last year or so, have been able to bring mass to this particular area, the south Zaporizhia area, which many think is any target for Ukraine's counteroffensive. They've dug trenches, uh, they've sent a lot of people to those areas, and so some analysis thinks that if Ukraine gets bogged down in a war of attrition along that long defensive line, it could potentially find success much harder to reach. Its potential for victory here is to move fast, and we've heard a lot of pinpoint strikes over the past week or so, particularly high-value Russian targets. Yesterday, a lot um, in Novokhovka, some in Melitopol as well. And that, many, I think, assess is a way of trying to soften up Russia's defences here. Quite what else may be happening uh, as we hear this increased drumbeat uh, towards Ukraine beginning this counter-offensive is unclear. But as I say, it's up to Kiev really to show to its Western partners here who've supplied training weaponry financing for a counter-offensive kiev and so much of nato want to see to be decisive uh, to be able to affect something relatively quickly and not get caught in a long war of attrition that ultimately may play into the blundering sort of mass nature of russia's force in that area
0: Mm, that's a great point nick and and i would argue a a long war that many people don't want to see nick payton wallace live force there thank you And just hours now into the latest ceasefire in Sudan, people woke to the sounds of fighting in Khartoum, the danger of the airlift operation becoming increasingly clear. This, these are bullet holes that you were seeing in a Turkish plane that was shot at earlier today before landing ultimately safely at an airport in the capital. No one was injured here. Larry Medowa joins us now from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. That's an entry point for thousands of evacuees. Larry, walk us through what you're seeing on the ground there and really the state of the evacuation process.
3: Rahel, so Jeddah in Saudi Arabia has become one of the main landing points for so many people who are leaving Sudan. But to get here, they first have to get to Port Sudan on the Red Sea. And that is a 500-mile journey from Khartoum to the east of the country in the middle of a war zone. In the best of times, that's a 12-hour journey. But right now, it's taking up to 30 hours, at least one person told CNN. And when they get to Port Sudan, they have to try and get on one of these Saudi ships that's coming across the Red Sea, here, so far the Saudis say they've evacuated at least almost 3,000 people, only about 100 were Saudis, the rest were from 80 different nationalities, including Americans and nationalities from all over the world. So that is one key operation that's getting as many people as possible out of Sudan. It's not just foreigners who are trying to leave Sudan, many Sudanese people are trying to leave as well, some of them go to the Egyptian border or to Chad or to South Sudan or to Ethiopia, but a lot of them are heading to that Port Sudan route and over here to Jeddah because then they can go into different parts of the world, so the American government still insists that it's still still not safe to coordinate an evacuation of private U.S. citizens. That's why so many people are making it across across to Port Sudan and over here. But other countries like France and Germany and the Indians and the Chinese have run some evacuations from inside Sudan or through Port Sudan. So that's one way why you see so many people coming over here to Jeddah. And then to other parts of the world, um, after just two weeks of con- constant fighting, so many people already killed more than 500. It just doesn't seem like this is about to come um, to a close anytime soon, Rahel.
0: Larry, it's a great point that I think is repeating. Nearly 3,000 people uh, coming through that port evacuated from 80 nationalities. It really gives you a sense of just how, how broad the scope is in terms of the crisis and how many people and nations have been impacted. Larry Medoa, thank you. And turning to business news, a cloudy picture for the cloud. Amazon shares under pressure pre-market after it warned of softer growth in cloud computing. You can see shares are off about 2.2 percent pre-market. The same issue is also facing Microsoft's cloud unit. Amazon, however, back in the black in a very big way after last year's losses. Also strong guidance for the quarter as well. Clary Duffy joins me now. So Clary, this, this is not just back in the black. This is a pretty big swing from a loss of $3.8 billion in the quarter a year ago to now a profit of $3.2 billion in this first quarter. So how did they do it? What did we learn?
4: So, Amazon has been aggressively slashing costs these last few months. It's laid off nearly 30,000 employees since the start of this year in two separate rounds of layoffs. It has been nixing products that weren't gaining traction, for example, a telehealth service and some wearable products. And it's also been slowing its expansion of its physical retail stores and, you know, pause construction of its HQ2. And so the company has really been trying to cut back on costs. And at the same time, revenue was up 9% year over year during the quarter. And so sales are going strong. And I think with a a lot of these big tech companies, what you're seeing is this sort of continued recovery process from the switch up that happened where they were growing with, with really rapid speed during the start of the pandemic, and then things really slowed down in a way they didn't necessarily expect. So still sort of more progress that needs to happen, but the recovery has definitely started for Amazon. And Claire, I know you mentioned
0: briefly there that sales were up. Talk to me a bit more about that, because as you know, Amazon really spooked a lot of people, certainly a lot of investors, when they reported previously that the consumer was pulling back on spending. What did we learn in terms of their e-commerce business and how consumers are spending?
4: Yeah, Rahel, it's really interesting. I think consumer spending looks really strong at this point. Its net product sales were up this quarter. And look, Amazon benefits from the fact that it has this real mix of products at different price ranges, and it's been cutting back on the costs of sales and fulfillment. And so I think that part of the business is looking, you know, maybe even stronger than expected. What we are seeing is that it's businesses that are pulling back on their spending. And you've talked a little bit about this this week with all these economic reports. This is a broader trend. But that is really reflected in Amazon's cloud spending, which has seen growth decent decelerate. And again, they said that they expect in the current quarter the growth to continue to decelerate. And I'll be interested to see if the same thing will happen to its advertising business If some of these businesses that are trying to cut costs will also pull back in that area.
0: Yeah, Clara, I think it's a fascinating time to be in this space because we're really on this whipsaw sales are up, sales are down, consumers are spending, now they're not, businesses are spending, now they're not. Uh, Clara Duffy, great to have you. Thank you. Appreciate the insights. And the tech earnings season? Not over just yet. Apple, the largest U.S. company by market cap, will they report next week? Dan Ives, managing director at Wedbush Securities, is here with his take on earnings so far. Dan, always great to see you. The good, the bad, and the cloudy. So, I want to start, Dan, with a recent tweet of yours. You're an avid tweeter. Uh, you say the cloud industry is holding up strong. Digital advertising, we're seeing slight upticks, and Silicon Valley is benefiting from cost efficiencies. This is not what most expected. What's happening here?
5: I'd say it's really Goldilocks relative to a you know a choppy macro for tech. And that's why tech stocks are up, you know, not just this year, but throughout earnings, because it's better than feared in terms of what you're seeing play out. You knew there'd be a softening, but cloud, especially from Microsoft, Google, and Amazon relative was better than feared, And I think that's the narrative that's playing out, which is why in our opinion, it's still a green light to own tech stocks.
0: Yeah, Nasdaq's up, up, I think, about 16% year-to-date so far. So is the worst behind us in terms of tech, the tech wreck? Is that behind us?
5: Look, I think you're clearly going to see some weak hands play. You saw with Snap and, and some other names. So some of the the names that are bad position in this macro, I mean, those could fall by the wayside. But I do believe these tech companies, they ripped the Band-Aid off with guidance, cut costs after spending like 1980s rock stars, and it's really put a bottom on a lot of these stocks. And still a lot of investors are watching tech from the sidelines. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And Dan, to that point, in terms of cost cutting, we just heard Claire Duffy talk about it with Amazon. In terms of the significant cost cutting, are these tech companies done? And, and I mean specifically in terms of the layoffs that we've seen. Is that behind us?
5: Now, I think we're probably about 80 percent through a lot of the layoffs in tech. Look, a lot of these tech companies, I mean, they've almost cut costs assuming mild recession. So you start to now see spending call it stabilized to uptick. I mean, even when you look at meta on digital advertising, you know, I think that really I think we're getting to the eighth, ninth inning of a lot of these cuts. But at the same time there's an AI game of thrones going on, eight hundred mm. billion dollar market opportunity over the next decade. These companies are spending aggressively there and that's important because that's mm. gonna be gold at the end of the rainbow in terms of what they're chasing.
0: Well, and to that point, to AI, you say that this is probably the biggest technology trend we have seen in 25 years. It seems like, at least from my vantage point, Microsoft is sort of leading the pack here. Who else do you see are really investing heavily in this space?
5: Yeah, Microsoft right now, I mean, they continue to be well ahead in this arms race because of ChatGPT GPT. And Nadella and Redmond have been aggressive. But then you look at Google, I mean, clearly stumbled out of the gates, but they're aggressively betting on AI as number two player. Then you look at Meta, focused on AI from a consumer perspective, and Amazon, and I think especially Apple, we'll hear from Cook next week in the developer conference in June. Spending, look, right now combined, we're talking 18 to 20 billion combined spending on AI and tech.
0: Mm. What about ads? What's happening in the digital advertising space? It seems like I'm getting some conflicting signs from some of the reports.
5: Look, Snapchat, I mean, I think the, those data points and $3 get you a cup of coffee, right? I mean, they continue to just misexecute. I think the better barometer, look at Alphabet. Look at meta. Stabilization on digital advertising. That's important as that plays out because you know that was really a big overhang for a lot of these tech names. You're starting to see digital advertising now stabilize, combined with cloud and I'll call it enterprise spending better than feared, I think investors had a lot of white knuckles, agita, going into this week and now sort of drinking a cappuccino, relaxing, going into the weekend as a tech investor.
0: (laughs) And then I don't have much time left, Dan, but before I let you go, what names do you like most in this space? I know you think that there's uh, more room to run here. What tech names do you like best?
5: I think Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA is an AI playing in cybersecurity, Palo Alto. And you know, I think those are really the, the, the core names here in terms of ways to play the trend. Apple continue to be our favorite. That golden install base at Cupertino, I think, will shine through next Thursday.
0: Dan Ives, great to see you. Thank you. He is the managing director Thank at you. Bush Securities. Good to have you. And welcome back to First Move, a key U.S. inflation gauge coming in line with Wall Street estimates. Core PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, excluding food and energy, increased 0.3 percent last month. Meanwhile, concerns are rising over a U.S. debt ceiling crisis. The Republican-controlled House passed a bill to raise the ceiling this week, but Senate Democrats and the White House are firmly opposed to that House plan. Goldman Sachs warning one-tenth of all economic activity would stop if Congress fails to increase the government's borrowing limit. And Moody's estimating even a brief breach of the debt limit would cost almost a million jobs. Joining me now, Mark Sandy. He is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to have you. Always a pleasure to chat with you.
6: Thanks, Ralph.
0: Top-line reaction to this PCE report that came in line with expectations, but on the back of a GDP report that that was weaker than most were expecting. Uh,
6: Well, I I thought... we're looking for slower growth i mean the federal reserve is working hard to get inflation uh, back down to something that we all feel more comfortable with and that will require an economy that's growing more slowly and that's what we got uh in the first quarter uh, gdp growth uh, about one percent that's about half the economy's so-called potential so if we stay there uh then that means we'll see much less dr- job growth and unemployment will start to notch higher and that's exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to see. And that's exactly what we need to get the Federal Reserve to stop raising interest rates. So yeah. hopefully, you know, it seems odd to say, but uh, hopefully we get job, uh, GDP reports like uh, the one we got uh, yesterday uh, for the next, uh, you know, for the remainder of the year. That, I think that would be uh, uh, that would be ideal.
0: Yeah. Mark, I think one thing that most people don't want to see is this debt ceiling breach. I don't think the Fed wants to see it. I don't think many people want to see that. From your POV, what's the X-State looking like from your perspective?
6: Well, it's highly uncertain. It, it uh, depends very critically on April tax receipts. Uh, but right now, the receipts are coming in on the soft side of expectations. And it feels like the x date the day when the Treasury runs out of the cash necessary to pay everyone on time, It's going to be in early June, so you know, just a few weeks away. So there isn't a whole lot of time here for lawmakers, uh, the the Congress, and the president to get it together and sign a piece Mm -hmm. of legislation increasing the debt limit. I I suspect uh, what they'll do is kick the can. Uh, They'll uh, maybe pass a piece of legislation suspending the debt limit so that they can line it up with the, the budget decision they need to make by the end of September, because as you know... Ah, uh, they need to pass a piece, another piece of legislation that would uh, uh, fund the government in twenty in the fiscal year twenty twenty four. So I, I suspect that's the next step here.
0: Mm. And Mark, of course, as you know, you know we've never actually had a, a debt breach of this sort, right? And so this is all highly uncertain. But walk me through the forecast in terms of uh, what is expected to happen if, in fact, that does happen this time around.
6: Well, Rahel, we really don't want to see that. Uh, you know, a breach means someone's not going to get paid on time. Uh, and as you say, uh, we've, uh, we've never done that in our entire history since the founding of the nation. And that is a, a cornerstone of uh, the financial system, global financial system in our economy that, you know, if you, you buy U.S. Treasury debt, you get, you get paid back on time. And if we don't do that, and we shake investor confidence, which we will, that'll mean we'll be paying higher interest rates for the mm. debt we need to borrow, for for generations, and the cost will be significant. And of course, in, in the most immediate aftermath of breaching the debt limit, uh, I think financial markets would be upended. That means that just means lower, lot lower stock prices, higher interest rates, a lower value of the dollar. It would be uh, financial chaos. And of course given how weak the economy is, we are growing very, very slowly, Uh, we would uh, clearly go into a a severe recession.
0: Yeah, you could argue it's the worst possible time for something like this to happen. And Mark, you've made the point before that the closer we get to uh, whenever that X state is and the longer perhaps we stretch beyond that, the worse it gets. But are we already starting to see the jitters uh, in the financial community in terms of some of the short-term treasuries?
6: Yeah, we are. Uh, it, it you know hasn't broken out all over, so stock stock market's still fine. So it hasn't. Uh, you, you don't you'll see it deeper into the plumbing. But uh, if you want to buy insurance on the, a default of the Treasury debt, you, you can do that. Uh, the cost of buying that insurance, the premium you need to pay to guard against that default, is uh, now as high as it's been in the in the in the data that we have. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even higher than back in twenty eleven, the last time we had a Pretty significant uh, uh, debt uh, drama. Um, also, you look at interest rates, you look at one month Treasury bill. So, that's uh, a bill that pays back within one month. The yields on that are plunging, and that's because investors are piling into that uh, one month security, knowing that they'll get paid back on time if they buy that one month. But if you go look at the three month, which is on the other side of this X date, uh, that has not come down. So that's another indication that, you know, in the plumbing, investors are now starting to discount the possibility that there's uh, there's a breach here.
0: Yeah, it's been really interesting to see the difference between the one month and the three month. Mark, we have this debt ceiling potential crisis. We have uh, banking jitters clearly still at play, at least with First Republic. We have interest rates that have been hiked almost 5% in a year. I could go on, but what worries you most?
6: All of the above, Ralph uh you know what worries me the most is uh, we all lose faith right because at the end of the day a recession is a loss of faith you know consumers you and i we kind of get nervous about our jobs and thinking that we're going to be laid off and we pull back on our spending businesses lose faith uh, thinking that they're not going to be able to sell whatever it is they produce and they start laying off workers and you get into this kind of self-reinforcing vicious cycle that's a recession So, so far that hasn't happened. You know, everyone's on edge. Everyone's nervous and cautious. But, uh, you know, we're still doing what we typically do. We're out buying Mm. and businesses are still hiring. And, you know, the economy is still moving forward. But I I fear that, you know, given all these things you just listed and, and then some, you know at some point we're just going to pack it in and and that would be a recession. Yeah.
0: And then some is a, is a great way to put it. And Mark, before I let you go, you and I spoke about this yesterday when I was reporting on the US GDP report, but explain to me a bit about what we're seeing here in this GDP report and why it seems to be a bit different than how we tend to see slowdowns and that businesses are really pulling back their spending, but the US consumer, my oh my, just remarkably still spending.
6: Yeah, good point. I mean, and this is key. This is uh, how we stay out of recessions. I mean, the consumer is the, the, the engine that drives the economic train. They're the, the firewall between recession and recession. And they're hanging tough. They're, you know, they're not spending with, the, people aren't spending with abandon, but they're kind of doing just what they need to do to keep the economy going forward. But the real kind of fault line in the economy, I think that this looks like it might be more of an issue is that businesses Appear to be uh, growing more cautious and starting to pull back their investment uh, spending, particularly on uh, equipment, uh, you know, inf- information processing equipment, transportation equipment. That's down and weakening, and that may be a leading indicator to some layoffs down the road here. So, well, this, when, yeah, I think the if we're going to go into recession, it, it may not be consumer-led, which it typically is. It may be, in fact, business-led, which would be very unusual. But everything about this economy, as you know, Rahele, as we were as we were discussing, it, is unusual.
0: Well said. Everything about this economy is unusual, which makes it a, an interesting time to be a financial journalist and an economist, I would imagine. Mark Sandy. And <laughs> an economist, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Pleasure Take to have care. you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. And welcome back to First Move. Opening bell sounding on Wall Street as we speak. The last trading day of the week and the month as well. The major averages on track for a positive April, but stocks still under a bit of pressure today. Shares of First Republic Bank actually Higher, yes, higher in early trading. That is something I have not said all week. Investors hoping that some kind of rescue package can be put together to save the firm. First Republic shares down more than 90 percent so far this year as depositors really pulled billions from the bank in the first quarter. The biggest leg down for shares coming in just the last few days after it reported earnings. And later today, the Federal Reserve releases its report on what caused the collapse of both the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The failure of both U.S. lenders helping spark the global banking troubles that continue to reverberate today. Christine Roman, CNN's chief business correspondent, joins me now. So, Christine, look, I think we had a pretty good idea, a pretty good sense of what went down here. What more are we expected to learn?
7: Well, will the, you know, will the Federal Reserve point to any anything that it missed in particular, or will this be cast as simply a case, a classic case of financial uh, mismanagement? That will be very interesting to tell. We'll also hear from the FDIC uh, later today about Signature uh, Bank, which was also a very niche bank that grew very, very quickly, and clearly its compliance and risk management didn't grow as quickly as the bank did. So we'll, we'll get a, a sense, a post-mortem, if you will, uh, if I can get the word. Out on what went wrong here, but the implosion of those two banks really sent shockwaves through the financial system. Just think, this was back March 10th, the week of March 10th. At that time, First Republic Bank, for example, had a uh, had a stock price on March 8th of 115 dollars a share. I mean, it went down all the way down to an all-time low um, earlier this week. So, you know, this has revealed those two banks that failed three actually that failed uh, last month really caused a lot of scrutiny and a loss of confidence elsewhere in the banking sector. And remember, so much of banking is about confidence. I remember when they put together, when these 11 banks put together sort of a a private sector uh, investment deposit infusion into First Republic Bank, someone who was uh, involved in the negotiations told me, this is a good bank. I mean, First Republic is a good bank. And when when you have uh, a consumer so concerned about what is a good bank, you know, that was a a sign of just how jittery people were in the system a month ago. So this will be, I think, critical for what happened. It's also a pretty quick review. Um, You know, usually it can take a long, long time to to, to go through what exactly happened. So the Fed has been, uh, you know, has it nose to the grindstone trying to make sure that, that they could get a report out quickly to tell, you know, the public just what exactly happened here.
0: Look, I think it's a great point, Christine. You know, a senior portfolio manager that I spoke to earlier this week also told me, look, their loan quality is stellar. So uh, in a lot of ways, it is and was a really good bank. Before I let you go, Christine, any sense that what we learned today might provide a bit more clarity for investors about whether the fall of those three banks were more idiosyncratic or whether it was actually more uh,
7: concerning in a larger way? My sense is you're going to find that um, those were idiosyncratic, right? That the overall, the financial system is strong. We have heard from regulators and bank CEOs, big and small, for weeks now, that um, that, that mismanagement and, you know, breaking banking rules 101 is the problem here. The higher interest rates, Revealed the um, lack of risk management, quite frankly. But in the weeks that have passed, every bank CEO has been scouring their books, trying to make sure that they have the right kind of uh, exposure here and tweaking what they need to tweak to make sure that they're not, you know, caught out when the uh, when when the tide goes out as well. So I, my suspicion is you will find that this is they will highlight exactly what these banks did wrong and stress that the overall banking system is solid, certainly more solid than it was during the Great Financial Crisis because of changes were made after that
0: absolutely christine romans great to have you a lot more to watch here thank you yeah and police departments in the u.s are turning to artificial intelligence to try to improve accountability ai is being used to scan body cam footage and determine whether an officer acted professionally and some police chiefs think that it could help save lives as vanessa gerkevich now reports
8: Officer Dan Janita is on patrol. He has all his tools for the day, including his body-worn camera, which automatically captures videos of his encounters with civilians. Saved you first? Absolutely. (laughs) 20 videos a day, over 100 hours a week. His final invisible piece of equipment, artificial intelligence, a program called Trulio, which analyzes what he records. Did you have fears about what it meant to have artificial intelligence tracking your day to day?
9: I did have apprehensions. It is AI. Technology can sometimes have drawbacks. It's Mm -hmm. not perfect. But at the same time, I've seen things play out enough where technology has helped us.
8: And that is what Trulio's co-founder and CEO, Anthony Tassoni is aiming for.
9: We started Trulio after George Floyd was murdered in May of 2020. How do we prevent this from happening again?
8: What percentage of body camera footage gets reviewed now?
9: A fraction of 1%.
8: And Trulio could look at what percentage of body cam video? 100%. The A.I. was trained by humans to detect five million key terms I
0: got him in the yard.
8: like profanity, non-compliance, as well as professional language or explanations. The goal is detecting early problematic police behavior before it turns deadly.
9: I get an email alert every day at six o'clock.
8: Dan Janita's chief, Ken Truver of Castle Shannon PD in Pennsylvania, has been using Trulio for a year. He's also an advisor. These are right. the so keywords that you put in.
9: They are so stop resisting, custody, arrest, anything to do with a pursuit. I'm looking for high-risk things.
8: Trulio transcribes entire encounters from body cameras, but pinpoints the exact moments that need review.
10: Stop resisting. Just relax. Just relax. Just relax. Just relax. Just
9: relax. Not a whole lot of resistance, but it was giving me exactly what I was looking for.
8: And so, for you, this is a good interaction with one of your officers and a civilian. It is. The Alameda Police Department in California has been using Trulio for a little over a year. It's seen a 36 percent drop in use of force by officers, Sony says. The AI pointed out risky interactions with civilians, giving officers the chance to review and change their behaviors. What would Trulio's involvement have been
9: in a situation like Tyree Nichols? I feel very strongly that Trulio not only would have recognized, obviously, the event of the murder of Tyree Nichols, but the hundreds of events that took place prior to that. I believe Trulio would have prevented the death of Tyree because it would have detected the deterioration in the officer's behavior years prior.
8: There are 18,000 police departments in the US. Just 20 are using Trulio, with 20 more signing on this year, including Aurora PD in Colorado.
1: It will be an early warning system that will help save careers and ultimately maybe even save lives. In 2019, three
8: Aurora police officers were charged with the death of Elijah McClain using excessive force during his arrest.
9: If we see
8: just a little
1: change in the officer's performance, we'll be able to actually intervene early on, get them help, get them counseling, get them training, do whatever it takes to get back on the right track.
8: Back in Castle Shannon, Chief Trover says the technology has only proven what he already suspected about his officers. What has this changed? Anything?
9: No. And, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I want to catch something before it happens. I don't want to be reactionary. We want to be looking ahead to make sure that we stay ahead of the game, and ahead of any issues. And I don't think that's a bad thing.
8: Vanessa Urkiewicz, CNN, Castle Shannon, Pennsylvania.
0: Welcome back. At a time of volatility in stock markets and also slowing global economic growth, also when inflation bites and seemingly stable banks fail, you can't blame investors for looking at alternative assets. And that's where art comes in. According to Statistica, global art market sales rose 3% last year to nearly $68 billion. Artsy connects over 4,000 galleries, auction houses, art fairs, and institutions from over 100 countries to the world's art collectors. And, and it's an exciting time in this sector, with a debate raging over the use of artificial intelligence. And, of course, it's an investment opportunity, which is highly subjective. After all, if you don't love it, you still do have to live with it. Mike Stieb is the CEO of Artsy and joins me now. Mike, welcome to the program. Great to have you.
10: Great to be here.
0: So let's start with, when is the best time to buy art as an investment? Because as we pointed out, economic growth is slowing, inflation is high, markets are volatile. Is now a good time to buy art as an investment?
10: The, the way the economy has been for the last even 15 years is the reason smart investors have been investing in art for centuries. Art's uncorrelated to the stock market. Uh, art is a hedge against inflation. And You know, the Fed can always print more dollars. The Fed Fed cannot print more Warhols. So in a moment when people are really worried about inflation, you continue to see uh, you continue to see a shift towards art.
0: Fair, certainly uh, the demand of the supply of Warhols are are very limited. In terms of art as an investment and how it performs up against equities, uh, what type of uh, performance are we seeing there? Our connection are we seeing there?
10: Of course, it depends on when you chop the market, but pretty consistently uh, contemporary art outperforms the stock market. And if you look at the last uh, the stock market over the last 25, 26 years, a basket of contemporary art traded in the secondary market has performed hundred thirty percent better. Mm.
0: And how much of that though, the the secondary market obviously is skewed by the the larger uh, higher value pieces, pieces that perhaps ordinary people can't afford.
10: Yeah, it really, that depends year to year and by the market. If you look at the art market last year, uh, the art market was almost $70 billion. The market grew 3%, but the biggest growth segment was artworks over $10 million. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if you look at what's happening now in 2023, uh, in the last quarter, prints and multiples, which tend to come at a much lower price point than original works of art, are up 38% year over year. So what we're seeing in this sort of shorter term is that there's this shift among the average art buyer toward more accessible prices and names of artists who they're familiar with. Well, and we've seen on artsy point. principle but we're doing really well right now.
0: So, so Mike, to that point, for someone who wants to buy something a bit more affordable, a more affordable piece, what's your best piece of advice? If you, you love art, but you're not necessarily sure where to even begin in terms of choosing a piece that you love, but you also hope appreciates and value, what's your advice?
10: That's right, a, It's a wonderful question. And a, a lot of your audience is comfortable today buying handbags and watches and jewelry and other things that are expensive branded products that, um, that they feel comfortable, they feel confident buying. And that same person today might walk into an art fair or an art gallery and not really know where to start. The prices aren't always transparent, the availability of the works aren't clear. And if you haven't been in the art world before, historically, You weren't sure why one painting was worth X and another painting was worth 100 times X. What we've done at Artsy is we've brought 2 million works of art from around the world, from the top artists in the world, all the way down to new emerging artists in your local market. And all of the things that were secrets held by people inside the art world, we've brought forward in the product. Uh, availability, secondary market prices, value signals, whether this artist had been collected by museums, solo shows, group shows, all of these really interesting data points that start to give hints to the collector that this is an artist who's going to be of greater cultural significance in the future.
0: I see. So you've sort of pulled back the curtain a bit on the, the process that used to happen in the shadows. You're trying to bring that a bit to the forefront to help exactly. investors make a better a better decision. Uh, let me ask, before That's I true. let you go, in terms of how RT is using AI, tell me a bit about how that, that process is working.
10: Well, the, the AI discussion is happening in the art world today, generally around whether or not AI is affecting art as a creative process. And we have 2 million paintings, prints, multiple sculptures on Artsy and virtually all of them have been created by human beings, not by computers. Mm. There's a second element of AI, which is smart technology companies are using AI, using machine learning to derive insights and create better products. One of the things that collectors who follow Artsy have noticed is that we're able to bring a lot of the data about the art world and about artists forward in a way that they can consume because we have this massive set of collector uh, intent data. What are people shopping for? What are people interested in? What artists are growing the fastest? What kinds of artists markets are starting to take off? And we're able to use technology,
0: Hmm. data science to bring
10: that forward in a way that collectors can make better decisions.
0: Yeah, Mike, I have so many more questions, but I have been told that we must go. We have run out of time, but wonderful to have you on the program. Thank you, you. we'll have you back, I'm sure. From the industrial revolution to the present day, advances in tech have really transformed the way we live. Right now, the development that has the whole world talking is chat GPT. People from all walks of life have found innovative ways to use it, including a pizza chef in Dubai looking to serve up tasty new
11: toppings. A pizzeria like this one in Dubai isn't usually the first place that comes to mind when you think of how artificial intelligence is being used in businesses. But for Spartak, Arut Uyan, the brand chef of Dodo Pizzas, AI technology is what's helping him think outside the box.
3: Customers really appreciate when you do something creative instead of just developing a new taste, a new flavor. The development itself can be creative and can be innovative.
11: As the restaurant opened its doors just a few months ago, chef Spartak knew he was up against a lot of competition, but he saw an opportunity to bring something different to the table with the help of ChatGPT.
3: So there you go, two pizzas by ChatGPT. Dubai is a melting pot of cultures and flavors and tastes. And it's really hard to combine it all in one product and make it special. I realized that I'm not capable of getting all these cultural nuances and make them work just by myself.
11: Using the chatbot to create a unique recipe for customers in Dubai, this was the result. A pizza representing a fusion of Arabic and European
3: flavors. Guess what? Both of these pizzas, are the recipes are made by ChatGPT. Oh my God. Yeah.
11: And chef Spartak isn't alone. According to investment firm UBS, more than 100 million people started using ChatGPT only two months after its launch last year. While the tool was developed to help with tasks that most would consider as time consuming, like research and data analysis, businesses in all sorts of industries are now using it to their advantage. Researchers at PwC say that by the year 2030, AI could contribute up to $15.7 trillion to the global economy. That's more than the current output of China and India combined, according to PwC. But like all new kinds of technologies, there's still some concerns.
1: By far the most common question I get is, am I going to lose my job because of this technology? There will certainly be some jobs that disappear and there'll be other new jobs created but by far the biggest category will be jobs that are transformed. The key is going to be looking for ways to complement what you're doing rather than to substitute for it. ChatGPT and the other large language models generate the answers on the fly and different times you use it, you'll generate different answers. But you also have to be very careful that what it generates is not always completely factual, That's
11: why Spartak is taking most answers he's generated from chat GPT with a pinch of salt. From optimizing operations to delivering personalized customer experiences, businesses in all kinds of industries around the world are continuing to take a slice out of the proverbial AI pie just to stay ahead.
0: And finally, before I go, a friendly reminder that children and cows don't mix. Just in case you were curious, police in Illinois were called after high school seniors brought some animals to campus for a prank. And those animals included a cow, which escaped and ended up loose in a Chicago suburb. Police, as we can see here, had to corral the cow, turning a quiet neighborhood into a real life rodeo. Wow. That is something you don't see every day. And hopefully those neighbors in that Chicago suburb moved out of the cow's way. You got it? (laughs) That is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World coming up next.
10: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.